what's up, dear listener? Uh, and welcome to another episode of the first episode that we actually have a name for this podcast, The Torch Podcast. Let's um, go. I am your co-host, Nathan Libahusen, and with me as always is... Uh, your favorite co-host, Devin Bindle. Uh, we want you to join us on this journey of relentless curiosity and normalizing civil discussions about everything from our fundamental rights to political philosophy, to finance, to foreign policy, all of this from two regular dudes that hate politics and love human flourishing. So, man, it's been, um, we'll break the fourth wall here a little bit. It's been a while since we recorded a podcast. We threw we threw a bunch in the can, um, and that was all before we had a, a title for this podcast, before we started officially posting, um, before we got a little more organized and had an intro and music and all this stuff. So um, hopefully this feels a little bit more structured for everybody, um, everybody meaning our love five Lovely <laughs> listeners. <You know? laughs> yeah. Hey, the anal- the analytics on RS on our pod uh, catcher, our podcast host, um, look really good. Um, so we're we excited about this. Yeah, that's super exciting, and we definitely appreciate all of you guys. Um, but man, it's been quite a journey, and we've been working our ass off for the last couple of weeks, and so it's good to be finally back here doing the podcast. I'm super excited for this one. We got a really fun idea uh, for you guys today. Uh, I know Nathan, you had a quote for us before we got going. Well, I wanted to end the podcast with that, but okay, no, okay, we'll definitely end hey, the podcast with that. Uh, well, I'll plug I'll plug a bunch of quotes right now. Um, I just bought a book called Excellent Advice for a Living. It's by Kevin Kelly. Um, he's like a marketing and investor expert. And he's been on the Tim Ferriss show a bunch of times. Um, but he, he posted these blog posts um, during his birthday where there were just lists of great, simple advice about everything. Um, and uh, he finally put it all together in a book and I bought it. So if you want more great quotes than you can handle, um, check out uh, Kevin Kelly's blogs or his book, Excellent Advice for a Living. It's a great way to yeah pick up a book and get a couple bits of inspiration. Let's pull one real quick since we're being a little more fun with this episode. Let's see what we got. Oh, the very first one in the book is super relevant for this episode. Um, he says, learn how to learn from those you disagree with or even offend you. See if you can find the truth in what they believe. Mm, how powerful is that? It- without doing that you cut yourself off from at least half the information in the world and so like just opening yourself up to uh the people that you might not agree with their information um is what we're all about and so that's that's an awesome quote yeah i agree and so we thought we would um ease back into i don't know some of the more serious or heavy content um we wanted to do a uh, a mailbag uh episode where fans wrote in and answered or asked us questions only uh, we don't have those yet, so we came up with our own questions. So we have a fake listener mailbag episode for everybody today. This will let us like hop around to a bunch of different topics and uh, play with a f- couple fun hypotheticals and let you guys like get to know us a little bit better. So, sure. oh, and what a coincidence! The very first question that we have here is uh, from a, a listener who asks, "Who the hell are you guys?" So, <laughs> Devin, who are yeah. you? Yeah. So um, I'm 26. I, I live in Louisville. I work with Nathan. Um, and, uh, I am just somebody who enjoys, uh, living life and uh, have just recently got into, uh, Bitcoin and recently got into, um, I've always been, and, you know, neither left or right. Um, and always know, known that I fit somewhere in the middle, uh, met Nathan, started talking about a lot of these libertarian views and philosophies. And, uh, and the more I learn about it and the more I hear about it, just the more it makes sense. 
Um, and so it's been a really exciting journey. Um, but yeah, that's a little bit about me. Uh, what about you, Nathan? Well, I wanted to ask, what are a couple of things that you're into outside of work yeah. and politics? I'm a huge Lakers fan, a ginormous Lakers fan. Uh, sad to say uh, they're not doing too well uh, right now. But um, uh, down than- two two zero in the series right now as of yeah. time of recording, right? Yes, down to zero. It's uh, looking gloom. Um, but also, I am somebody who loves traveling. Uh, I just got back from Thailand a couple weeks ago. Uh, one of the most beautiful places I've ever been in my life. Uh, it was so much fun. The people were so nice. Uh, it was just a really amazing journey. Uh, and then I, I I plan to now go to Italy uh, next year. Um, so excited, super excited about that. How How real is that? Uh, super real. Um, started the planning like a couple weeks ago. So oh. I'm super pumped about that. Uh, I, one of my really good friends, he's wanting to go with his girlfriend and he invited us. He was one that I went with to Thailand. Uh, and it was, uh, it was great hanging out with him. And so I'm uh, going to give it another go. Awesome. It's- Italy might be my favorite place in the world. It's, uh, I mean, it's tied for first with other stuff. If it's not standing alone, number one, um, but yeah, uh, my name is Nathan Lubehusen. I'm 31. I grew up in Indianapolis. I've spent almost my whole life there, but have wanted to move to where I am now, Denver area, Colorado. Um, I've wanted to move here for over 20 years. Um, the uh, Allegedly, uh, not a, this part's not alleged. My family went skiing and steamboat when I was 10. The alleged part is that I cried the entire last day because uh, my parents said we were going home and then I couldn't keep skiing. So uh, I've known I wanted to be here for a long time. So that kind of answers the question as to what I'm into outside of work. Uh, all the Colorado things, everything from Mexican food to craft beer to snowboarding, mountain biking. I just bought a BMX bike. So uh, more hobbies than I have time for sure. But I've been, um, uh, grew up like a, like um, typical Republican Bush conservative Catholic family and, and have since moved uh, to the libertarian side of things. Um, So I've never really been left or right either since I started thinking for myself. Um, And so, yeah, I had a whole lot in common with Devin. We don't, don't totally line up on some things, but we generally agree with each other. So we're really excited to get some opposing views in or just some nuanced thought in here too. So it's not, so it doesn't just end up us agreeing with each other all the time. Yeah. A hundred percent. Well, I'll ask you um, if you had to highlight one of your hobbies outside of the um, podcast, outside of our podcast ideas, uh, like what is your favorite like outdoor activity to do in Colorado? I'm always jealous that you're out there. It's, it's gotta be snowboarding. It's the best feeling in the world. Yeah, it really is. I I fucking love shredding down a hill. There's nothing like it. Yeah. I've got I want to get a whole lot better, but oh yeah, yeah man. When did you so, start? Uh, I was one of the founding men- founding members of my high school ski and snowboard club. So oh, around then, where and uh, in Indiana? Yeah, we found a hill, uh, snuck onto private property. This <laughs> farmer had a hill. Now it wasn't quite that bad, but I think it was like four hundred a four hundred foot hill. Uh, you stood in the lift line longer than you snowboarded down the icy <laughs> hill so uh, i've graduated a little bit to the rockies oh yeah the rockies are a different place out there um well awesome we'll get into some other uh mailbag questions second mailbag question um one that i'm really excited about uh dream president of the united states cabinet um for for both uh, uh me and nathan here uh, so we'll start with you nathan yeah so if i if i were president i 
based on my like group of mentors and people that I listen to, you know, I fantasize about being the president and then promoting them to these cabinet positions and all of, all of my cabinet members are more qualified than I am, but I, so my job as president would just be to like gather all of these amazing ideas from everybody and be like the final stamp of approval. Uh, uh, so um, we're going to do cabinet positions. And then I also want to throw a chief of staff in there and a white house press secretary in there. So starting with the white house press secretary, um, one of my favorite libertarian and anarchist voices out there is Michael Malice. Um, I think he has an incredible way to, communicating with the public. And instead of this horribly fake White House press secretary dynamic where they're uh, saying the official thing, they it's a bunch of corporate non-speak. I think he would actually deliver points and be honest with people. And, and uh, Secretary of Defense, my favorite anti-war voice is Scott Horton. He's the most studied and intelligent person on American foreign policy since probably World War II. And his knowledge extends past that. He's just been focusing on, uh, on everything post-World War II. And um, he's written all kinds of books on the war on terrorism. Uh, he's just a genius when it comes to foreign policy. Uh, and he's generally anti-war. And I think that's the most important issue, especially now. So I want somebody that keeps the world from blowing itself up. And that nobody's better at that than Scott. Uh, my secretary of the treasury, I brought up Robert Breedlove enough on this podcast, um, but I'm going to do it again. Uh, he's going to be my secretary of the treasury. He's got the best fundamentals when it comes to money. Um, and he will be the guy that uh, first probably audits the Fed and then dismantles the Fed and ideally the IRS and things like that later. And then we move to a hard money standard. And we've talked about Bitcoin a bunch. I think Robert's probably the best guy to do that. Um, and he's apolitical too. Uh, a lot of these guys are you know, they haven't been entrenched in the left-right dynamic for a long time. Uh, they'll be able to rise above all of that. And then I want to put Jocko Wellink in there somewhere too. He's a little bit more war hockey than I am, but I think he would be an amazing, like maybe veterans affairs guy or more an executive leadership position, like a chief of staff, like coordinating a bunch of different people. But I think we can win him over. <laughs> I think, I think we need skilled soldiers. Um, I think it's a dangerous dilemma to put somebody who's uh, even yeah. some pro, I got, uh, I got, pro I got that's got wrist the size of my neck. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he just seems like belt. his violence is not going to be swayed. <laughs> no. Uh, so those are some of my top choices. Um, there's, uh, yeah, there's, there's some other ideas in there, but I want to hear yours too. Yeah. Um, so I, I came I came up with my uh, presidential cabinet, but I also did not I didn't put myself as the president. Uh, I decided to elect someone else as a president, although oh, um, how humble. Yeah. Well, now that you said I didn't realize it was a choice or I probably would have gone the other way. <laughs> Um, but so for president, um, I went ahead and put uh, RFK. I think um, he he's just the most excited I've been about a candidate in a long time. And I don't think he's exactly where I want him to be. Um, but I talked about this with you a couple of days ago, Nathan, about how I think he sets us up. I think we had an initial shift right now to a fully libertarian ideal that it would scare people and it would cause this uh, problematic uh, incident throughout the culture. And I, I think if he could start to sway people to move more towards anti-establishment and start breaking down all of these, all of this trust that we have um, in the establishment. I think that that could be extremely impactful. 
Um, and so I, I also think um, that he seems to care about people a lot. Uh, and so I, I'm excited about him as a candidate. And so I thought he would make a, a pretty good president. Um, and so to my vice president, this one's not shocking. If you knew me, uh, this one's a little more fun. But Elon Musk, I just think he's uh, would be a great advisor. Most of the things that he does succeed. He's also anti-war. He's also um, he's pro um, success, but he's uh, also anti um, like establishmental control. He's uh, a lot of the things that, that I like, but also he, I know he's intelligent enough to get things done. I don't agree with everything he says, uh, but the way that he runs his companies um, and the advice that he gives to his constituents, it, it always leads to something positive. Uh, so he was one fun one that I wanted to throw in there. He's one uh, of the best problem solvers to ever exist. Yeah. And so, exactly. he, so even that meta skill w- would make him a great candidate. Uh, uh, put, put the individual comments and individual issue positions aside. If you had to get something done, like Elon's your guy. Exactly. And I and I don't think that he. You don't want to put him in full power because I'm not exactly sure his intentions all the time. <laughs> well, that's um, how I feel about RFK Jr. You know, so we got, no. we have a we have a whole podcast uh, or two about RFK because he's polling so well and he's appearing on all these big. Uh, podcasts and and uh, news publications like we'll be bringing him up again for sure because yeah. he's such an interesting political figure right now. Extremely interesting, and again, I don't agree with everything he's got to say in all of his politics, but he just he excites me about, uh, especially his anti-establishment view, but his just leadership style and his care for uh, seemingly care for the people. Um, and I'm not sure if that's a facade. It always has a chance of being a facade, but um, it's, it's got me excited for a little bit. Uh, so on to my Department of Defense. Uh, that's going to be led by John Mueller. He's a uh, very popular um, libertarian voice uh, that's anti-war, uh, lines up exactly with what the way I believe uh, things should be set up. I, uh, he believes that you can cut down uh, the spending of war to a very minimum amount um, and really only um, have your nuclear um nuclear power uh, as a a main deterrent, um, but also have enough defense that you can uh, keep any of your enemies um, at bay if they do decide to attack. But he doesn't want to throw in any of the extra money for going to um, trying to control other governments. He doesn't believe in using utilizing any of the extra money um, to spend on uh, military equipment that is not going to be used. Um, and so really just aligns with what I was what I think of as a good uh, Department of Defense leader. Uh, for Department of Education, I have Jordan Peterson. No real shock there. Oh, uh, nice. You, uh, some of the former episodes, uh, I think, I mean, obviously you've seen him fight uh, the Canadian legislation on uh, their educational uh, laws and uh, and win and succeed and lost, you know, some battles, but so far winning the war. And I think that he could do uh, some real damage as a Department of Education leader in the United States. Uh, what did you think about that one, Nathan? Well, he's, um, I have... I haven't dove as deep into Jordan Peterson as a lot of people, but uh, I think he's another one of those guys that has a great meta advisory skill. Like even when Mm -hmm. he's not dealing with um, tearing down or reinventing the educational establishment, he would, he's like a philosophical advisor too. You know, exactly. he He could have a positive contribution to any problem you're having as a president. 
and imagine the brain power of Elon Musk with the the emotional intelligence of Jordan Peterson, like being able yeah. to in the same room, like just the the amount of information transfer that could occur there and and understanding between the two. I think that they uh, would work really well um, if they had a, a leader um, to, to push. Um, and so the the one we did agree on was the Department of Treasury, uh, Robert Breedlove amazes me every time i listen to one of his podcasts uh just the amount of information that and the way he understands money uh and to the level that he can explain uh, his beliefs and just what he wants to accomplish uh or what he wants us to accomplish and what i think he would accomplish if he was in the position to everything you spoke about uh, i believe the same thing he uh, would be able to break down uh the things that we currently uh view of money as and uh, show that we can create a more stable and more concrete money. And I think that would be amazing. Uh, So that was my list. Uh, And so uh, that was was the end of my list. So I guess we'll go into the next mailbag question. I wanted to throw in one more of the health and human services department head. Uh, I wanted to throw in Dr. Peter Atia. I think he's an incredibly intelligent guy and he's about as removed from politics as anybody I've listed. Um, but he stays, he's an incredibly intelligent doctor and stays up to date on the, the research at the forefront of like what of longevity mostly. Um, but, uh, he, he's probably one of the best communicators and best brains out there to dismantle the FDA and the food pyramid and, and, uh, emphasize the right things. You know, we went all the way through COVID without the government recommending that we make sure we're not vitamin D deficient a single time. And there were huge correlations to um, of avoiding hospitalization or at least death by making sure you're not deficient in vitamin D, a super cheap, one of the cheapest supplements out there. Uh, yeah. So he's going to be a guy that's going to tell you to exercise and uh, make sure you're not vitamin D deficient. That solves way more problems than we think. So that's an awesome ad right there. Yeah. Uh, Plug for Peter to you. Yeah, I love, um, and, and so going into the next next question in the mailbag, the next question is: What is your favorite libertarian voices, um, and where do we start uh, with these libertarian uh, voices? Where should they? How should they go uh, into or um, putting their ideas out there in the world? I had a reflex answer and then I decided to change it. Uh, nice. If you're starting from somewhere, I, I want to say like Lex Friedman, because I think it's, it's one of the healthiest places to start uh, because you have a guy without an agenda, unless you consider human flourishing an agenda and start with Lex because it'll teach you to be patient and humble and consider a bunch of different points of view. And I think if you set yourself up with that foundation, it's really hard to go astray as long as you like do a, what would Lex do type, mm-hmm. uh, type of speech to yourself in the mirror every morning. Under a hundred percent. I have other answers too, but I want to hear you. Yeah. A hundred percent. Uh, Lex is, uh, I, I don't have, uh, to, you're the libertarian, uh, go-to. So I'm going to let you take over most of the question, but I, so I'm wanna... your favorite libertarian voice. That's yeah. So yeah. Nice. So far you are my favorite libertarian voice. <laughs> Uh, but Lex is Lex is just incredible. Um, he 
just the way he wants to understand his desire for information and his humility really sets him apart from everybody else. Uh, any other podcaster that you could listen to, uh, he doesn't try uh, to better any of the people that he's talking to. He just listens and takes in information um, and really cares about the people around him. And like you said, when you go into life with that mindset, it will have a beautiful impact on your life. Uh, and then if you can also take that into every other sphere, um, your business, uh, in into your um, political views, like it's going to have an everlasting impact on your life. Yeah. And I just thought of this too, uh, after this episode, if you guys are like driving or multitasking or whatever, we're going to put a list of uh, maybe not all, but a, a lot of the big names that we're mentioning in the episode description, and then like what they're experts in. And in terms of following them, like Google their name and you'll find the podcast and Twitter account and all that stuff on them. But we'll do a, a short punchy list of the, the people that we recommend today, because the, the list, the people that we're mentioning today are the result of, in my case, years and years and years of filtering down a lot of really intelligent voices and picking the best of the best. And, um, that the list is ever changing, you know, I'm finding new people all the time, but it's not somebody I just found out about yesterday that I think is cool and made an interesting point. Like this is years of vetting them and, um, holding heroes to a very high standard to make this. And how awesome would it be? How awesome would it have been if right when you started getting into this desire for new information, um, if you would have had this list just correlated for you, just ready to go. Um, like I've slowly discovered these people and each one of them has had a powerful and impactful, um, you know, impact on my life. And and so I, I, I think it's an awesome collection of just names and and people that can really impact your life in a, in a positive way. Yeah. And, self-discovery is cool, but if I could have handed a post-it to myself at 16 with a list of these names, uh, I could have saved myself or I could have put, you know, <laughs> advanced myself faster and a lot sooner. Um, so in, in, in terms of libertarian voices, uh, this can be defined a little bit differently. Um, one of my favorite libertarian communicators is Dave Smith. Um, he's the host of part of the problem and he's a, it's rumored that he's going to run for the LP ticket in 2024. Um, he and where he excels is cutting through the bullshit. Mm-hmm. He will not like politicize or get sucked into a culture war about something that's not important. Um, he and so many politicians are distracting with minor issues that, that don't even break the top 100 things that are actually impacting people's lives, but it's a divisive issue. And so they'll just create a new cycle out of it. And Dave's, uh, always there off to the side saying, uh, you know, we killed hundreds of thousands of people in Yemen by supporting uh, that war of genocide, you know, by backing the Saudi Arabians and nobody even knows about it. And he's bringing these types of much more important issues to platforms like Joe Rogan and his own podcast and um, his incredible Twitter account. He's a, he's an incredible debater, uh, just a super effective libertarian communicator. So he's up there too. What a- that's, that's one of my absolute favorites. I've just now got into um, Nathan pointing me in the direction of Dave Smith and hit and, and you're right. It's the ability to take on bullshit at a thousand miles an hour and just cut right through it. Um, mm-hmm. and he, it's like, he doesn't even think it's just because I, I think he's very um, wise, but also very um, strong in his decisions that when he, when he understands something, he understands it concretely um, and, and can communicate that with such uh, efficiency. It's really awesome to watch. 
And I trust him to surround himself with experts. I mean, he's, he's a, he started his career as a stand-up comedian and didn't even start talking about politics until the Ron Paul revolution, you know, uh, 2008 or something like that. So um, his background is being a dirty comedian and hanging out with comedians in New York. Um, and that taught him his communication skills, but he is like, not like this lifelong entrenched bureaucrat. Um, but it's, it's wild how some comedian from Brooklyn can dismantle I just, I mean, throw any expert from any subject, um, Adam in, in a debate and he'll, he'll win it. It's wild. And maybe, maybe that's some of that Brooklyn and I'm like, uh, mm-hmm. um, going up to New York, you know, they have that ability to just cut through the bullshit. Yeah. Um, anyways, so maybe yeah. that's a little bit of that coming out. Uh, other favorite libertarian voices. I mentioned him in my cabinet, Scott Horton's my go-to guy on foreign policy. I just think he's really important to follow. Um, and it's uh, so much of what he talks about is you're not going to hear it on in the corporate press because um, they're disincentivized to tell you about it. Uh, and there, there are plenty of others, but I think we've got other questions to get to, too. So we can circle back if we need to. For sure. Let's pull another one. Um, OK, this is a good one. This is a good one. Uh, OK, really, who builds the roads? <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, this question is uh, like the. Uh, semi tongue in cheek or t- like it's kind of a joke. It's the bumper sticker objection that's hurled at libertarians. Um, because when you get to a small enough size in government, uh, eventually the government isn't responsible for infrastructure anymore. Um, and, uh, I think the average person out there discredits libertarianism or minarchism or small government in general, because, uh, they get to a point where like, oh, well, you need the government for that. There's no way for the private sector to do that. So uh, I think being able to answer the who will build the roads question confidently um, and with a good answer moves the needle more towards anarchism than most people have ever thought of. Because I would imagine most people out there think that there's not an answer to that. Who mm-hmm. could possibly build the roads besides the government? And uh, I think there's some really cool answers out there. It's something I want to keep studying. So I'll give you some of my favorite points and ideas. Um, But this is, uh, but at the end of the day, folks, we're so far from this being a reality that it is not a legitimate point to discredit making the government 1% smaller. Uh, I think it's, it's well accomplishable. I I, I don't think it should definitely not be a deterrent, deterrent, but it is, it is well accomplishable. I'd love to hear your ideas about it. Yeah. Uh, Even if the the libertarian running for office doesn't have a good answer for that, it is not an argument for uh, not lowering the marginal tax rate by 5% for the middle class, you know, like they're, they're so far apart from each other. Um, So uh, as everybody knows, the infrastructure in the U S is not great. Um, I, most of the reports I've seen from, uh, crap, what's that, uh, department of the train explosions, engineers, Mm -hmm. Corps of engineer, army Corps of engineers. They do a bunch of infrastructure studies. I think, um, uh, most of the bridges and tunnels and things get, you know, D's and D minuses and bridges are crumbling, let alone the potholes and things like that. Uh, so uh, I think we can talk forever about how the government is not a good solution has proven to not be a good solution for these. I think that's take the Michael malice approach, uh, to, uh, to not adopt libertarian principles because you don't think it can be done privately. My argument is that, uh, it can't be done publicly because it's not being done right now. Uh, The money's going to Ukraine instead of the pothole in your neighborhood. So, 
Uh, one of my favorite ideas was actually from Larry Sharp. He's run for governor in New York um, a bunch of times. He's been on Rogan, things like that. Um, but one of his one a genius quick band-aid solution, um, especially to bigger infrastructure projects like bridges and tunnels and things like that, is to sell them to private corporations. If the Brooklyn Bridge is falling apart, the bridge from Manhattan to Brooklyn, um, if it's crumbling, let Verizon Wireless put a giant billboard on the on the bridge and own it and own the naming rights. And in turn, Verizon Wireless is responsible. They get the naming rights, like to put the big logo on the side of a stadium, like an NFL stadium. Same principle applies to the bridge. You know, they would be responsible for uh, keeping it up. And if there were any problems with it, you know, that would fall on Verizon Wireless's reputation. So Verizon Wireless wins because they get a ton of name recognition out there. How many tens of thousands of people go across that bridge every day and they get to they get huge public exposure, you know, pictures of the New York skyline have a little uh, Verizon wireless logo there. So they're making money because they get eyeballs and we get a new bridge without stealing it via taxation from a single citizen. And I think you can apply that at a bunch of different scales. The adopt a road program, adopt a highway program, have this mile, you know, uh, give the private corporation that owns this mile of highway uh, extra advertising rights in exchange. They, you know, pay for keeping it up. I think it's that's a simple, awesome. voluntary, like market solution to this. Yeah, I think that's an awesome idea. Um, my my thing was just in the same same realm. It's just like a, an efficiency issue. So we we realize that the government we if you've known people that work uh, for the construction companies that work on the roads, they talk about. Um, I've known some of them, and they've talked to me about the fact that they don't have to work all day. A lot of their time is spent, you know, doing what they want to do. Um, and so we know most government institutions are just extremely inefficient. Um, and so to assume that we couldn't spend our own money that they're spending uh, in a more efficient manner is ludicrous. And I think you just opened up a whole new uh, can of worms there with the the probability that most of these roads would be paid for by corporations <laughs> Uh, in result, they would get the ability to advertise on their sp spot of land. Um, and I think that, that they would gladly accept that uh, offer. But also, even if it was us that had to pay for these um, fixes in a conglomerate and paying towards a um, like a nonprofit organization that, that took care of these issues, we would still be able to do it grossly more efficient if there was competition out there for how it was going to be done. Um, because there would be multiple different organizations or companies that would be competing to get this done at a faster and more efficient or better rate. So mm -hmm. our roads would get better, our roads would be made more efficiently. You wouldn't see people out there. We all know we've all driven through traffic and you're like, bro, they've been working on this road for yeah. a lot two years, like yeah. the last two years. And, and none of us are like, wow, man, they really got this road done fastly. But you see like a McDonald's going up across the street and yeah. it's up in 14 days. Yeah. And so like, it's crazy the difference in how fast a, a private company can work on something versus how much a government is, how long it takes for a government institution ran company uh, to get, to get finished with all of their uh, tasks. It's just crazy.
Yep. Uh, I think this could be a whole podcast episode on itself, but I think we can take huge chunks out of this just with a couple simple solutions. Even if this doesn't move completely private, at least decentralize it. Make the state re- the state being responsible for its own roads is better than uh, Washington, D.C. being responsible for a faraway state's roads. And if you can decentralize that to the city or the county or the township or uh, the city level, uh, th- that's all better because you're closer to the people actually in charge of it. Uh, and, and your voice is louder because you're there's you're competing with less conflicting interests and um, there are less voters to raise their hand at a town hall and say, hey, there's a pothole in my neighborhood. You know, it's decentralization at any level is uh, would be an improvement. So I don't, how much of the infrastructure problem do you think we can fix just by moving it from a federal to state or state to county and uh, and then selling naming rights for bigger, more complicated, expensive infrastructure projects with the high eyeballs. I mean, it'd, it'd be so nice. Third, a third of the problems. Really nice, yeah. We'd be driving on really nice roads all the time. <laughs> yeah. And we wouldn't be paying for them. <laughs> How oh, yeah. That's, yeah. Uh, that I mean, we, we forget that our taxes are what's paying for it. It's not the government paying for any of these things. Yeah. You know, we are paying for these things and we forget that like it's easy to say, but like we we forget that I hear people talking about like giving money to Ukraine and they're like, well, let's just throw five hundred million dollars to Ukraine. And and people in Twitter comments are saying like, uh, that's fine. Like it, the government has every right to, to spend money on that. And it's well, that's your money. Like, just remember, yeah. I mean, they do have the right, but that is your money and that shouldn't be taken away from like that. That thought process shouldn't uh, elude your mind. Yeah. And even if we, even if you, we agree that the government should have that money, uh, it, you have to argue that there's nothing better that the government can spend it on. And then once we get there, we'll talk about how, whether they should have the money in the first place. So you, the burden of proofs on you uh, and man it is tough to make an argument that you can spend your own money better than the federal government sending it to some proxy war. Without a doubt. Uh, so on to the next question, next exciting question in the mailbag. Uh, what policies are a must to improve our political sphere? What are your thoughts? Yeah, clarification on this listener's mailbag question. Um, uh, what like what legislative policies would help the di- opposing sides get along better? I think uh, just yeah get along better or it can be in it can you can decide the um end goal um but like what do you think would be the biggest improvement or some of the biggest improvements that could be made i think the sing- the single biggest thing is get money out of politics mm-hmm. and that's a really general complicated statement so uh more tactical legislative approaches to that would be uh, making this is a libertarian advocating for a law here, but um, they're yeah. <laughs> uh, but making it illegal for people that hold public office to then work in um, conflicting industries. Yeah, uh, for and, and there are some laws around this, but they get around it so easily and they don't last long enough. So uh, a, a congressman or senator cannot hold a board position at a publicly traded company. They can't work at any company that has um, that is contracted with the government in any part of legislation that they've had any hand in. I mean, the conflicts of interest are just so obvious and that would help align these alleged public servants incentives 
better with their voters instead of their own career interest. That's a huge one. And it seems that's automatic. You wouldn't fix it overnight, but it's, it, I mean, obviously. And then, uh, I don't know. One of the best Twitter Twitter accounts is uh, Nancy Pelosi stock portfolio or portfolio tracker. Um, yeah, how is somebody that's made a hundred thousand, a few hundred thousand dollars a year? How is she worth uh, over a hundred million dollars? Um, so Crazy. insider insider trading. You know, uh, if you decide to be a public servant, you got to give up some things. Um, if you're going to uh, assume the we monopoly on violence, then we can you pay don't... them more, but we can't. Sure. We gotta keep them out of the stock market. There, yeah. that, that just automatically sets up a set of rules that says you can make money off of decisions that you make, even if it was right now. We know that they're getting paid; they're getting money transferred to them to make these decisions. But even if they weren't, they would still be making decisions based off of what stock, what their stock por- portfolio looks like. That has to be eradicated, oh, yeah. in my opinion. Yeah. So sorry, while you're an active um, public servant, uh, you can't have your own private stock portfolio. Solve the problem another way. If you need money for retirement, a government pension then, or uh, you can't be picking your own stocks, Nancy Pelosi. I mean, it's so yeah, it should obvious. be a, pen- a pension is easy. A pension, uh, just make it a hundred percent. If you just like the president, you you gain a salary, and it can be a hundred percent of what you make for the rest of your life, and we would still have grossly more benefit than what we have right now with them participating in the stock market, making decisions based off of what companies they want to do well instead of what is best for Americans. Mm-hmm. Yep, agree. And then uh, I've heard good arguments on either side of term limits, but I still think it would be a net good to have term limits. Term, so, term limits for president, um, yeah, everybody, every, every way down. I mean, there are already right um, term limits for president. I mean, or I don't know if it's actually legal because Teddy did three, uh, but it's like this tradition that nobody's violated since. Um, anyway, uh, it term limits restore public service as a temporary public service job. So ideally you have your own successful career and then you choose to do what is more or less a sabbatical by going to DC, representing your people, making a positive change. And then you go back to your real job. Being a Senator for your whole life, Joe Biden is not like a real, it wasn't supposed to be this career long job. You're supposed to be a farmer and then travel on a wagon to DC to cast the votes in accordance with how your people in your district were voting. And then you have to get back to your own farm like live your life. I think that would restore such healthy perspective um, and keep elected officials' interests aligned with their constituency instead of being a career DC person. I do have concerns that though we wouldn't have, the problem is you can't trust anybody now. I think if you get rid of that by not allowing them to work in the stock market, in my opinion, you allow them to stay in the position longer because they will have more experience and do better. Um, I mean, I do think a fresh perspective is always helpful, but I think the problem with them staying in so long currently is more that there is so many avenues for chaos and corruption that they, instead of them, um, you know, being in there doing good for a long period of time, they're in there and the longer that they're in there, the more opportunity they have for chaos and corruption. Yeah. You're you're just hanging out in an environment with bad incentives. And the longer you're there, you're just going to form, you're just tempted by evil longer. longer. Um, and the, the, the decent argument I've heard uh, against term limits is that people will make short-term decisions because they're only in there for, uh, well, you know, one or two election cycles. 
Um, and so I'm like, oh yeah, that's a good point. You know, you want somebody that's there, that's invested, that it's going to make good decisions for the long term. But I think so many of the bad decisions that elected officials are making are based on getting reelected. And so if you remove the 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 one third of their brain that's always focused on getting elected and making decisions based on is this likely to get me elected? Um, if that's not even a possibility because you can't get reelected because of term limits, I think you'll make more honest decisions. That's a good thought. Um, and I, I think that's one of those uh, 50-50 calls. There's obviously pros and cons on both sides uh, and something we can maybe get into on another sure. one of our podcasts because I think that's a that's an interesting one. I wanted to bring up one more before we move on. And this might be bigger. This is bigger than term limits for me is uh, no legislative bills with materially unrelated components. So pork, anti-pork bill, basically. Uh, if you're going to pass a law, everything in the bill has to be materially related to each other. Mm-hmm. So you can't pass a COVID bill and uh, throw in oh, a few hundred a million dollars for Boeing. Um, that's a huge one. You can't put... Um, AUMFs um, or uh, funding for other countries in an infrastructure bill. Now, everything in the bill, this will keep legislators from playing the the vote getting game by promising local favors to people in order to vote for their big omnibus bullshit bill. So that seems easy. Like if, and anybody arguing against that clearly has like bad motives. If you're an upstanding person, if you're so confident, like, if then you're we're voting on your own bill, then you're not going to mind it standing alone and, mm-hmm. and, and, and looking how it does. Yeah. And if you're not confident, you want to hide it within another bill. And, and so there's no re I agree. There is absolutely yeah. no reason why that's not uh, a, a formidable law. And, and a side benefit. Um, forgot where I was going with that. Oh, a side benefit is the bills would have to be so short that you'd actually be able to read them all. And then uh, the people voting for or against wouldn't have any deniability about how they voted because the bill is short and simple and materially related enough that they would have to stand by their vote every single time. And you, we wouldn't be able to say, oh, it was a 4,000 page bill. You know, you can't blame me for voting this way. That excuse goes out the window. Well, and that, the incentives, like you politics. can't add incentive. You can't say add, go, go to a politician and say, well, we'll add this in there if you vote this way. Like, well, we'll add this little part in there as long as you vote yeah. this way. And, we'll and promise so, 5,000 yeah. jobs for your district if you vote for this. Yeah. Yeah. The quid, co, quid pro, pro quo is not going to be, um, it's not going to be just available for anyone at any time. And I think that that would overall add some stability. I think that's, uh, that's a really good one. I was going to go somewhere way more extreme. Um, so a super, I guess, libertarian idea here is I don't think anything should be, I like, I agree with everything that you said there about your policies, but on this policy, I was thinking more legal, um, uh, and criminal. Um, so I don't think any, anything should be illegal that is, uh, non-harmful to another human being. And so, um, and, and that's harmful financially harmful, um, you know, in, uh, you know, a violent way that's harmful. Um, and I don't think you think harmful is in verbally because that gets into some really gray areas. I think we um, protect our uh, right to free speech on that one. Uh, although I, I am one that firmly believes that you should treat everyone who, how you want to be treated and you should um, talk to everyone how you want to be talked to. Um, and, and so, um, 
but on this, I, I don't think that we should have so many people that have been imprisoned um, for the possibility of violence or the possibility of corruption or the possibility. I think we judge people based on their own merit. Um, and then you you incriminate people that uh, have done something um, justfully wrong. Uh, and when you don't do that, uh, we have overfilled prison systems currently. We have um, uh, policies that uh, have to be questioned so many times that uh, oftentimes we really don't understand what the law is in its truest form anymore. Uh, and that's just been from a basis of creating a lot of bad laws. And another another big rule that I would like to add in is the reevaluation term. So after a law has been created, I think after five to 10 years, however long you want to make it. Uh, I was the just law about to bring this up. Yeah, the law should have to be reevaluated. What were you going to say? Yeah. A, a sunset provision for all laws by default. You know, yes. so if they're not actively voted on and renewed, um, maybe this will be different terms for different types of laws. But you know, every five or ten years, if it's not actively voted to keep on the books, it falls off the books. I'm glad you agree on that one. That one's a, I think that that one's a must. Uh, yep. We we have a lot of foolish laws, and I, they're all made with good intentions. I'm sure. <laughs> Maybe not all of them, but hopefully all of them. Uh, Most of the judges in this country are very good, but uh, that doesn't mean that they're going to mean the same thing five years later, 10 years later. Uh, This world changed fast, as we all know. Uh, And so I think it's really important that uh, we uh, all are always responding to the changes that are happening around us. Absolutely. And and to speak real quick on your overarching, you know, victimless crime type uh, yeah. legislation. Yeah, um, that's a lip. Uh, that's kind of how libertarianism bases all of its decisions. It's based on the, the non-aggression principle. So that's, I think, the foundation about how we think and how you encourage freedom while preserving private property and individual sovereignty. So as long as you it, the. The non-aggression principle says, um, don't hit people, don't take their stuff and keep your promises. And so any um, law that isn't violating one of those three things, so no physical violence, uh, no theft and no fraud, then what's the point of the law in the first place? So the top, the big ones that come to mind, prostitution, the drug war. I mean, those are my two huge Those are the biggest ones, but you got to think that that the just the drug war itself is what 40 percent of the people that are um incarcerated currently yeah but it's even more if you like if immaterial like related like i don't know gang gun violence that's like remotely connected to drugs like it solves so many problems well and it solves them when you adequate it with the other libertarian principles like when you allow people to start businesses that don't necessarily have to go through these all, all these loops and ties just to be able to to be able to start their business and you have people that have all of these things that other people want and you can try to call them drugs and demonetize whatever you want to do but if they were able to create their own business in these lower end communities and they were able to uh and they were able to sell these drugs and and um and make their money they would not be shooting each other they would not be getting mm-hmm. in games fighting each other having race wars like all of these all of these really negative things that we see in our society are really made because the drugs are illegal not necessarily because the drugs are drugs and i think that 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 fact in itself is just um, we have a lot of people that are hurt currently and their families are destroyed and their lives are destroyed. And instead of like treating them like humans, we're throwing them in a cage and, uh, and they never meant to hurt any other person. And some of them did, 
but some of them didn't. And that's really, really sad. Yeah. Not even to speak of how difficult it is to become a productive citizen again after incarceration, like the system set up to keep you help hold you down or encourage uh, recidivism. You get out and you can't get a job. You get out Mm -hmm. and you can't get insurance. You get out and you can't get, uh, you know, anywhere ahead in life. Your credit score is gone. Like uh, your ability to get an apartment is gone. And and so you don't have a job. You don't have a house. You don't have any ability to protect yourself. And what do you, what do you think you're going to go do crime? It's the only thing available to you. Incentives again, folks. What is, you know, what are those types of people incentivized to do? Crime is a lot of times the best option again. Exactly. And that to me is the one thing that we could fix and it would change the way that we all viewed each other in a way, I think, because a lot of that violence starts these other wars that exist within our political sphere and our culture of why certain people hate other people. And that all is just super sad because I think it's just a big misunderstanding of, of where people come from that could be eradicated if we weren't illegal, like not illegally, immorally imprisoning people that didn't deserve it. That's right. That's enough on that question. I mean, we can keep going down the rabbit hole on that one, but oh yeah, I know we can go on that one forever. <laughs> Um, so we gave you some specific policy prescriptions and then overarching ones about, you know, uh, rethink your fundamentals on how laws should be written in the first place and then apply that. And man, we get a whole lot of changes there. Yes, 100%. Uh, so next one, uh, CBDCs. What are they? What is the threat to Bitcoin? Um, what is your view on them? Uh, CBDCs are, uh, I think, late stage capitalism's no, late stage central banking, Freudian mm-hmm. slip there, late stage central banking's last ditch effort to uh, control money with no basis. Um, this can get more or less tinfoil hatty, but I think it's it's the government taking an extra step towards controlling where your money comes from, what you do with your money, incentivizing different behaviors. Like you thought like taxes and credits and deductions and things like that guided your behavior. Imagine when everything's in a, a database controlled by the central government. Um, it's basically the U.S. government issued digital currency. Um, and people that don't know a whole lot about cryptocurrencies or Bitcoin will probably not identify a bunch of differences between them. And in some ways, like they are similar, but in so many important ways, they are so, so different. And, and so uh, the headline here is avoid at all costs this would be disastrous for everybody everywhere. Um, and a, tin, a little bit of tinfoil hat. I think it's so perfectly likely that the government is going to use the next crisis in order to move people into CBDCs. The worry now is that if a few banks collapse, the government will uh, bail out the account holders at these banks, but they will bail them out with a new CBDC instead of the traditional U.S. fiat currency. Um, they say, here, all your money's back. It's just in this Fed account. And here are your, you know, here's your 5,000, 500,000 uh, CBDC tokens. Um, and then, uh, I mean, if they're using a blockchain, I think they are. They're tracking where you're spending it. They can they can shut off payments. I mean, just think of the trucker protests, uh, the COVID protests in um, Canada in the last few years, shutting down Thousand. people's accounts just for allegedly supporting a peaceful movement. Uh, so it, it gets concern. real dystopian real quick. That's enough. Yep. <laughs> that was my biggest concern. Uh, was just the, the, the data tracking. They have access 
they have access to all of your data um, and at where you spend it. Um, and people already have that large concern about that right now. Uh, and then if we gave that that power to the government over our money and over our, where we are, when we are, and like you said, if something does happen, um, like the trucking crisis, they could quickly just shut at, shut down your entire life uh, in a second and, and you would have no control over it. And so you'd have to do what they say. You would uh, essentially become their slave. Uh, and so I think that's a genuine concern. And even if you think most of that is tinfoil hat bullshit and not going to happen and you inherently trust the government, there's still even like even granted all that. What's the inherent advantage of a CBDC over Bitcoin, which has been proving itself for the last over a decade, decade and a half? I would love to hear an argument from somebody how the government can't fix potholes. What makes you think they can run a CBDC? I I don't understand. It has everything the CBDC does have, plus plenty more. Yeah. Also, yeah. but also is non the the central fact is it's not run by the government, and uh, I mean uh, even if you trust the government, there's just no reason for you that for you to give them your the control over your money if you don't need to. The whole reason that we started trusting banks was because we were worried about people stealing our money or coming and taking. We wanted a safe place to keep it. We have now a provided safe place to keep it throughout Bitcoin. And so we don't know, we no longer need this governmental figure to tell us how we need to hold our money. It just isn't needed anymore. Right. Uh, So we'll see how the CBDC thing develops. And uh, it's cool to hear some prominent politicians speaking out against it. I don't know if uh, like a Ron DeSantis type, you know, I don't know if his intentions are totally great about it everywhere, if his understanding is even that deep, Um, but it's nice to hear some big uh, politicians in in some state legislatures say no already preemptively. It's a good sign. So we'll stay tinfoil hatty a little bit. Uh, Why do you think that this is the next question in the mailbag. Why do you think that Italy banned uh, Bitcoin and did they ban it? What, what's going on? Uh, I haven't read a, a ton about this, but it seems like they implemented a, a 26% uh, like capital gains effectively tax on cryptocurrencies. So it's just it's the government thumbing the scale, um, priming the pump for their own CBDC or try, discouraging Bitcoin uh, because uh, Bitcoin's a money they have a whole lot less control over. Um, it, it doesn't. Unless they want to, uh, unless they want to pretend it's a security like any other security, and they're taxing all their other securities like, uh, you know, uh, stock investments and things like that, capital gains twenty six percent. They they have that plausible deniability, maybe. But I, I don't know. Anybody that's paying attention to this is like, oh, this is just one small step towards implementing a CBDC, discouraging Bitcoin uh, to maintain control. It just seems obvious to me. Yeah, I think you have to uh, ask yourself, like, is this something that we want happening to our money? Like, I I understand that they're doing it. And um, but like, is this okay? Do we like that this is happening to our money? Why can't we just have some financial freedom with how we invest our money? Um, If it isn't within the the financial stock exchange of the current of the currency that you're utilizing, they already have control over that. I would love if they didn't, um, but they don't and they shouldn't over Bitcoin. And that's kind of just my thoughts on it. It's been really cool to see uh, Bitcoin not really be affected by this price-wise. I mean, one of the biggest 
mm-hmm. arguments against Bitcoin is its price volatility, which we've talked about how that's likely to go down as adoption goes up. Um, but it was it's been really cool to watch all these sometimes scary uh, news headlines come out um, and have uh, Bitcoin not be so affected. I mean, even the China mining ban a couple of years ago that cut the hash rate like in half didn't destroy Bitcoin. And um, so I don't think these one country at a time implementing these laws is, is, you know, try as they may is not going to destroy Bitcoin. There's a whole new underground culture that I know has precipitated in the United States and I'm sure has everywhere else. Like even if they did ban it, there is quite a few people that would say, no, I'm still going to, to do this. Um, and, and I'm not sure how they would stop people if they did that. And I think they know that, or they would have probably already banned it. And that's the end of my tinfoil hat speech. <laughs> or I, I th- if the, there's a really cool Bitcoin culture that, uh, um, that makes the price move in the opposite way that you would think. I mean, if the, all these laws come out, you know, if you're a market analyst, you would think that the price of Bitcoin would go down because it's, um, you know, legislatively, well, this isn't looking good for Bitcoin, but a lot of enough people are recognizing that this is a thinly veiled control move that they're like, oh, they must be covering their asses and this must not be looking good for their fiat currencies. So like just as many people that think it should hurt Bitcoin are saying, I need to buy more Bitcoin. Yeah, uh, so that good. I think that's only going to continue to grow. grow. I totally agree. Uh, next mailbag question. What got you into libertarianism? Yeah, uh, I think it was... I think it was admittedly probably Gary Johnson, uh, his 2012 campaign. Um, and then I found Ron Paul pretty quickly after I'm like, Oh, this is like the pure version of, of Gary Johnson. Like he was a likable enough guy and, um, he was vastly superior even with the Aleppo shit to, uh, the other candidates that were running at the time. I think I was fed up with the left and the right. And I was like, who's this Gary Johnson guy? Um, and looked into him enough. I'm like, Oh, I agree with all this stuff and I can do a better job at running my life than the government. And then I found Ron Paul and then it all snowballed from there. That's so awesome. Uh, my introduction was, uh, well, I'll say Nathan, uh, the first person that I knew that was a libertarian was really odd, but, um, Rand Paul's son, um, so, uh, odd little connection there. Um, but, yeah. um, Rand Paul's son, uh, is a big libertarian, uh, voice hoping to have him on the podcast at some point. Um, but he also talked to me about a lot of these ideas, obviously his father doesn't have, but, um, then I met Nathan and that was the biggest, like eye-opening moment. We started this podcast and I just started hearing everything, started doing the research, um, and these are just kind of ideas that already had always precipitated in my, precipitated in my head, but I didn't know that there were so many people that agreed with me um, and so many people that wanted the same things that I didn't even necessarily know that I wanted yet. Um, and so getting to see these new concepts of people that that respect other people's freedoms, but that love and care for other people um, and don't, it's not this like hate for the other side. Like they, they have a true belief that, you know, you can run your own experiment and try your own things. And, um, uh, I just thought it was a really beautiful concept. And so it's been an awesome journey. Wow. That, that's so much shorter of a history than I would have guessed. Yeah. Uh, no. So it's cool. I knew uh, some about it before then, um, but not enough. Um, and, and you've gotten me into like the big names, researching, listening to podcasts and learning about it. Um, for the first time. 
Yeah. And this isn't a uh, us versus them. You're in the, you know, you're a card carrying LP member or you, we hate you. It is absolutely not that binary. And we say the word libertarian a whole lot. Uh, but it, even if we, you know, we'd have the same principles, even if the party didn't exist. Um, and we hate tribalism because tribalism is collectivism. And that goes counter to libertarian principles that are based on the individual. So this is all, everybody's at a different point on this and it's not one, a one axis spectrum from left to right. Um, it's much more complicated than that. So, um, there are other fundamental divides like, uh, red pill, blue pill, uh, discouraging dissident thought versus encouraging it. Um, there's all kinds of more fundamental divides than left and right. And so, um, uh, we have a lot of libertarian themes on the podcast, so we wanted to ask this question, but don't feel like, you know, you, you have to be in the club to listen to this podcast because we're still, we're on a journey too, man. Uh, I, this is the most coherent, logically coherent political system I've ever, and philosophical system and moral system that I've ever come across. And so I am constantly trying to poke holes in it because it seems too good to be true. And if it really is this simple, this cohesive, this ethically consistent, why aren't more people aware of it. And so Devin and I wanted to get a message out there, question ourselves, try to poke holes in it, invite guests on. Uh, but also, but until we find a better system, like promote this a little bit and try to get more people to seriously think about it. Yeah. It, I mean, it's just like, for me, it was just so exciting to hear about um, and learn about. Um, and when something excites you and, and fills you up with that much joy, you just kind of want to share it <laughs> with as many yeah. people possible um, try and, to avoid religious or evangelical connotations here but uh i don't know it's yeah, how i yeah, imagine yeah, you know people when they find out about jesus or the gospels or you know pick <laughs> a religion that you're like hey this is the answer i want to spread it um and i feel similarly i imagine about this uh only you don't have to believe in anything that could be argued isn't real you're just believing in order in to like freedom. It's, it's, it's all praxeology. It's the study of human behavior and incentives. And like, you can apply yeah. it to yourself and be like, Oh, that's definitely true. And then yes. if it works for you, it works for more people. It just, it, the more you dive into it, the more it makes sense. And that's what I find so exciting about it. Like normally yeah. you dive in and you get something catches your eye and you just feel a little shaky about it, but you normally just still convince yourself like, this is where I fit in with this. It's not that at all. It's like, I dive deeper, dive deeper. And in, and the own ideology asked me to question itself. And as I dive deeper and question uh, myself more and more, it just seems more and more correct, um, more and more viable. And uh, it's just a really, really interesting thing to get into. Agreed. We're uh, we're at about an hour here. So we want to wrap up on. Oh, yeah. Maybe the last question or, or yeah. Yeah, I'll do one last question to send us home. Uh, the last question is what got you into Bitcoin? I was admittedly late to Bitcoin. Um, I, I actually went and found out that um, I've had a song in my in my music library for over 10 years and thought it was just some Japanese dude's name. I had no idea. I went back and found some EDM song from like 2012, I think. And it's called Satoshi, Satoshi Nakamoto, which is the founder of Bitcoin. And I, was, and I didn't realize that until like a couple of years ago. So technically that's my exposure. That's as early as I got in, which is so lame. Um, but, but later, many, many years later, I think I threw podcasting, got exposed to, it was probably like Robert Breedlove or um, some Bitcoin specific podcasts and saw tweets start rumbling, but I, and then it, it didn't go away. I remember hearing about a financial planning client of, uh, of mine or a team that I was working on. He was wondering it, 
he was buying Bitcoin mining rigs in 2012. And we thought he was like weird and crazy. And <laughs> like, you're going to spend $10,000 on computers for internet money. It just, it didn't <laughs> make any sense. And then just Bitcoin didn't die. It kept growing and um, people kept making money on it. And then I learned more about the fundamentals and I've only taken it more seriously as time goes on. It's uh, talk about trying to poke holes in something like I, I'm personally throwing everything I can at this, trying to destroy it. And it's just stand strong. Impossible. Yeah. How about you? Found, You've got yeah, a, found, a better story than me, I think. I found Bitcoin uh, in college, early in college. Um, this would have been, it was $800. I don't remember what year. I want to say 2015, 2016. It was $800 for a full Bitcoin. Um, and I bought a full Bitcoin uh, and I utilized the whole Bitcoin. Uh, <laughs> I, there is still some out there somewhere in the in the ethos that um, I use it on a website that I just figured uh, it would still be there. And now I can't find it. Don't know my password. Don't know how to get into it. And so um, sadly lost what would now be. Uh, well, now at one point it would have been twenty one thousand dollars. And now it's uh, just like seven thousand dollars. Um, but still, um, oh, so, I, so did you I spend the whole thing or do you still have bought, a fraction of it sitting in some wallet somewhere? It's sitting in a wallet somewhere, but I can't get access to it. And it's like $7,000. You're not alone. That doesn't make it any less sad. It makes it incredibly <laughs> sad. But at one point it was $21,000 and I was extremely sad. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, yeah, man. I, and we're no experts on cold storage and hot storage and how to secure your Bitcoin. Maybe in a future episode, we'll, uh, 2015. we'll, we'll point you in the direction of some really cool resources for that. But, um, yeah, it's, um, you're not alone. I mean, there's what the, the million dollar cheeseburger, the, the hundred million dollar pizza, you know, things like that. People are yeah, buying I mean, little things just to test it out back when Bitcoin was worth way less. Cool. Stories. The stuff I pay, I bought it on, it was worth no more than a couple hundred dollars total. Mm-hmm. And now I just spent the whole Bitcoin. It's just so sad because it could have been $25,000. But you win some, you win some. I should have trusted but, it back. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. You can play it as sad as some of these Bitcoin stories are. You can always play could have been with what you could have done with your money or should have done with your money. Like, yeah, I mean, yeah you should have bought no Amazon back then made. too. You know, like it. But that no- was the only way I could have made, probably. There's some other ways in the stock market, maybe. Yeah. I could have made $25,000, and I wish I would have held on to it. And I think I'm going to think the same thing about the Bitcoin that I have now in 20 years, in 30 years. So I won't spend this one. I'm holding on to this one. I trust uh, the, trust huddle. Bitcoin going forward. Absolutely. Well, hey, we're just over an hour. I think that was a, a fun mailbag uh, session. I uh, really appreciate all the fans that wrote in with these questions. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, we would love the next time we do this, we would love them to actually be people that listen to this podcast and not just, uh, us two idiots, like coming up with a, a short list of what we want to hear ourselves answer. So, um, if you have questions, please reach out to us. We're on, um, Instagram, we're on Twitter, uh, at the torch pod, um, send messages to us directly if you know us, um, and I don't know, plugs, encourage other people to listen, um, Anything else, Devin, before we wrap up on a profound quote that I found the other day? Yeah, no, uh, it was an absolutely amazing, fun podcast. Uh, Super excited to share this one with you guys. Uh, But yeah, if you guys have any questions, always go to our Twitter um, at the Torch Pod 
and or our Instagram. And uh, and uh, you probably if you already follow us, um, just go ahead and leave a comment under one of our videos, and we'll get to the question on the next uh, series of the mailbag questions. Yeah, we want to do this regularly. Shake it up. We'll get into more like structured. We'll still try to have fun with topics, but we'll like dive into more topics and really try to make ground on them. Um, this one was kind of all over the place on purpose, but um, I wanted to end on a quote, which is actually an email, one of Steve Jobs's last emails um, uh, that he sent to himself, but remarking on how much we all need each other. And I want you to hear, just listen to the quote straight through and then rewind the podcast and listen to it again through the lens of how this could speak to the power of decentralization and um, yeah, I guess free markets in general. Um, So no agenda first, and then go back and listen to how maybe this quote is pretty profound and applies to other areas. So Steve Jobs said, I grow little of the food I eat and of the little I do grow, I did not breed or perfect the seeds. I do not make any of my own clothing. I speak a language I did not invent or refine. I did not discover the mathematics that I use. I am protected by freedoms and laws I did not conceive of or legislate and do not enforce or adjudicate. I am moved by music I did not create myself. When I needed medical attention, I was helpless to help myself survive. I did not invent the transistor, the microprocessor, object-oriented programming, or most of the technology that I work with. I love and admire my species, living and dead, and am totally dependent on them for my life and well-being. And on that note, we will see you guys next week. Thanks, everybody.